good morning, church. Those watching here, those worshiping here, and then those watching online as well. Uh, man, if, you, if, uh, if this is your first time worshiping with us, we do invite you. Uh, hopefully you were given a card when you came in. Uh, just fill that out. And at the very end of our service, uh, we actually have some gifts that we'd love to give you today. Just a thank you for being here. You can drop that by our desk on the way out. Um, the desk that says Lindsay and East on the front of it, and there should be somebody there uh, to give you a gift. But also, um, and during our first service today, we had uh, our... Um, uh, our nursery back for the first time in the first service, and so we had some zero to two year olds in there. And so, if y'all know of any uh, parents that are staying home right now, uh, just a little bit fearful, the first service is a great opportunity for them to come. There's not it's not a whole passel of kids in the building at one time. It's just a small age group. And so, if there's anybody that's unsure if you're watching this at home, and we're talking to you, baby, um, come to the first service because it's a great opportunity to get back to worshiping here with your church family. Um, on that note, though, uh, if you've not if you're not serving in our kids ministry and you would and you think you can tolerate kids um, and you have a heart uh, just for families and for helping families out, right? We would love to plug you into that. And so, uh, Miss Cheryl will be at the table at our guest table uh, when you leave today. She's also got a sign up sheet there uh, for anybody that's never served in kids ministry, but is thinking about it. Miss Terry just wanted to. to to start helping some more people plug in to begin to serve in kids' ministry. And so uh, we have an awesome, awesome uh, children's minister, Miss Terry, and she does such a good job, but she's got a great team of volunteers around her as well. So today you can do that. Um, but it is a good morning to be here with you guys, and I'm, I'm excited uh, to be back in God's house. We're rocking through um, this uh, series. We're moving through the whole Sermon on the Mount, but kind of breaking it down into three different sections. And so today we're on part two, week three. Um, of the series that we call The Theme of the Kingdom. And so we're realizing, what we're realizing, hopefully, as I'm preaching these messages and we're moving through the text together, is that the theme of the kingdom involves the heart of man, okay? Heart of man. So our hearts are exactly what Jesus says the kingdom is all about. And so uh, man's heart is sinful, yes, um, but it's that very heart that God changes to resemble his ways over time. And so today we're going we're gonna to move to the next set of verses, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. So you can go on and turn there. As you turn there, it's an opportunity for me to have a heart-to-heart with you, okay? Uh, today I'll be sticking to my notes a whole lot, uh, just to make sure that I say things exactly how I want to say them, okay? Um, so this is my first time to be a teaching pastor of a church, right? Teaching every week, preaching every week. In the past, I only preached on what I wanted to. I didn't have to preach much. Pastor asked me to preach. I could just sit down with the Bible and preach on anything I wanted, preach any theme, any passage I wanted, okay? I usually wasn't having to move through a series or anything like that. Now, I wasn't one to avoid difficult subjects intentionally. However, I had a natural tendency to preach on things I was passionate about and that I understood well. Before I came here to pastor, I knew, Heath, you can't do that anymore, right? We've got to... uh, If I was going to be your pastor... I wanted to preach differently. Part of the way that I do that is I like to get into a particular book of the Bible, or at least part of a book, like we're doing through this, and just move through it, right? Move through it. Whatever the text says, that's what I'm going to preach on. We did that when I first got here through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you remember, we took six weeks to go through 16 chapters. So that was kind of jumping through some particular themes. What we're doing over 13 weeks right now, we're smack dab in the middle of that 13 weeks, is we're moving through, or 12 weeks, sorry, 
right, there's no middle part of 13 weeks. We're right after the hump of 12 weeks um, in this series. And um, uh, so what we're doing now is we're moving really a section by section without really skipping a verse. And so today we're tackling one of those sections of Scripture that at least part of it I want to skip, okay? Um, just being honest with you, uh, Jesus addresses a topic today that I know many of you have walked through, and it's been painful, and I do not want to discount that. I love you enough to be careful with how we talk about it. Please do not judge my sermon by the first 10 minutes. Wait and see where we're going, Okay. <laughs> But I love you enough to not skip over this topic either. And so I want to walk through this thing together. I'm going to read the passage out loud. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to come back and look at verses 31 through 37 and kind of break it down. So let me read it to you first. Uh, Jesus says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife but gives her a written notice of divorce. I butchered that. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, whether by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Don't even swear by your own head. Because you can't make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Let me voice a prayer. Father God, we come humbly before you, God, with your word open and our hearts open. God, we know that you've given us your word so that we might know you and know ourselves better. And God, you've given us your spirit so that we might understand what we read today. God, guide my mouth in my mind, God, as I proclaim the truths of your word, uh, God, in, in difficult things, but also through the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And I pray that today, God, that you would open our eyes more to who you are and more to who we are. Be with us and teach us to know you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, when we started this current series, I told you that there were six statements from the Old Testament or from popular rabbis during Jesus' day that he, wa- he needed to address. And so we can really think of him in three pairs. There's the first two, the middle two, and then the last two. We've already, we spent the first two weeks addressing these first two, that they were the big sins. We talked about adultery and murder. We talked about how um, Jesus addresses those, but what he was actually showing us that, yeah, most of us probably haven't committed adultery or murder in the act itself. However, we have all committed it because there's a desire of our heart that pushes us towards those things. And so Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples and in turn getting across to us that we are broken sinners in need of a transformation of the heart. This attitude behind our sin begins in the heart. And so we spent the first two weeks on that. Now we get to the second pair that deals with divorce and telling the truth. And just as the first two have a connection, so do these two. What we see here is Jesus is addressing a group, uh, these two, because these two are things that, uh, that the, the Jews of the day were misinterpreting. They were, had a bad interpretation of what God had said in his law, and they thought that they, were, they had found a loophole to, to, uh, to uh, allow them to sin without any fear of repercussion. And so Jesus comes to correct the bad interpretation of the law of God in both of these ways. And so 
Um, it's gonna, it, we're going we're gonna to move through. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one um, and really showing some key things, and then we're going to tie in the second one, and then, uh, and then we'll uh, just respond to what God's laid on us today, okay? So number one, if you're a note taker, is this. Jesus corrected their interpretation of divorce. That's simply, that's what Jesus was doing, okay? Um, God had spoken to his people through Moses in Deuteronomy 24, and he had given directions for what he called a certificate of divorce, now, this verse can appear ambiguous if you were to read it. We're going to read it here in a little bit. We're going to read verse 1, um, and you'll see what I mean by this. But it can seem to be saying something that it's not. And that's why there was a misunderstanding of what was going on there. So Jesus is making two corrections that I want to share with you today because I think they're corrections that we need for our heart too in, in regards to divorce. To fully understand the nuances of Jesus' teaching on divorce, we're not just going to look at chapter 5 of Matthew. We're also going to bring in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus is put on the spot, spot and asked about divorce. And we're going to look at some Old Testament passages as well. So correction number one to the theology of divorce is this. God may allow it, but it isn't his desire. It can be easy to read verses in which God is making an allowance or a concession for a sin and think that God is okay with the sin itself, but that's bad Bible reading. It's why Jesus, when he is asked about divorce, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. If you read along in Matthew chapter 19, I know you probably just got to Matthew 5, but we're going to jump to Matthew 19, verses, verse 3. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? We'll get to that here in a bit. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. If you've been to a Christian wedding, you've heard that. You can quote it probably, right? So Jesus is dropping some truth bombs that should have been foundationally cemented into the minds of the Hebrew people. Genesis 1 and 2 provided for the, the Hebrew people like the foundational uh, aspect of who God was and who man was. And so this is, an, this is a text that they should have been familiar with. Um, this was the first part of the first book of their scriptures. And so it was important in how God interacts with his creation. However, they had allowed the weight of this particular image, the two becoming one flesh, to be lightened over the generations um, since it was spoken. And so when Jesus is asked about whether divorce is all right, the first and the only thing he says is God made them, and he called the man to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. We should think about that and that should stand out. That that is what Jesus goes to in Matthew 19 when he's asked. Jesus says that upon marriage and intercourse, the two bodies, the two people, the two lives become one. Just as God takes man in Genesis chapter 2 and makes two, marriage is the reverse. Right? Two becoming one. This is what the way that the Bible speaks of marriage. Marriage is the two becoming one. And so uh, Jesus seems to really believe that this happens. It's not just some poetic, pretty thing that we say at, at marriage ceremonies, right? It does sound beautiful. 
But Jesus seems to really believe that it happens, that the two are literally becoming one flesh. It's real and it's intense and it should be taken seriously by those that are about to enter into marriage and those that are already in it. When two people come together, they are becoming one flesh through a physical, spiritual, and emotional connection that God designed. He is involved in it, and it's his thing. He built the system by which we become one flesh. And so if those two people are being put together by God through the process that he ordained, Jesus says there is nothing that should separate them. And so when we allow the marriage bond to be broken, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, and Jesus confirms it in Matthew 5, that the, the lines begin to be blurred of sexual immorality, and it can cause sin on the heads of more people than just the two divorcees. And it can, it can make a big mess. We don't even get into the financial and emotional and physical toll it can take on both parties. If you've been through a divorce or you have a close family member or friend, you can testify, it's hard It's tough, and it's difficult, and it hurts everybody that's involved. So hear me when I say this. God is not pleased when a relationship is broken. When a marriage relationship gets to the point that the husband and wife see no repair for their marriage, and they divorce, I I believe God's word shows us that that's not God's plan A. Broken relationships, I would argue, is never God's perfect plan for us. Any relationship. So if you're like, hey, I'm married. He ain't speaking to me. Hey, check it again. Let's back it up. Roll the tape. Roll it back. (laughs) Right? Any relationship that is broken is not God's design for this. Because he is a God of reconciliation and restoration. And he has called us to be the same. Check 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When we allow bitterness and resentment and all that junk to build up in any of our relationship, that's not good and it's not God's plan A. Just because God told the people about the certificate of divorce doesn't mean that he would be pleased when they had to use this this concession of the law. And so as I was studying this week, it just hit me. I was like, well, then why did God allow divorce at all? Why why didn't he just say divorce is bad? Don't do it. (laughs) But this would have left... Uh, man and woman, they wouldn't have had a way to dissolve the marriage. And so they would have had to find some sketchy Piggly Wiggly and a guy in a van in the back, right? And find out some, find some sketchy paperwork <laughs> to end what, what, anyway. Y'all ever been to a Piggly Wiggly? Like a sketchy one. I'm not talking about good ones. The one hard more. Easy now. Easy. My, gra- my, my granny who's watching this. She used to work there. Y'all just check it. Right. That's right. She was a shining face there. Um, so that was a bad joke anyway. Um, but God actually does allow, he provides the resolution for the situation. And so I think that's something, man, that just hit me this week that was really important. And I want to share with you what a lot of hours of studying this week helped me understand about why God even provides the resolution for the divorce in the first place. And so that's where we get to correction number two. Correction number one uh, was that God allows it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he likes it. Uh, Correction number two that Jesus is bringing is that the allowance was intentional and narrow. And we're going to talk about those two separately. As we just talked about, God made it clear in Genesis 2 that a man and a a husband and a wife were one flesh, right? 
and they should never be torn apart. But the truth already existed, however, by the time of Moses, that adultery would sometimes occur in a married couple. And you can see the theological issue that this presents, right? A husband and a wife come together. They're one flesh. And then the neighbor gets involved. And the husband makes himself one flesh with his neighbor, female, right? So now who is he one flesh with? His wife or the neighbor? This is the theological conflict that's going on. And so if, if this occurs, it creates all kind of problems. That's the conflict. Adultery, adultery became the one theological allowance for divorce because it destroyed the very truth God had set up in the marriage relationship, which was the two becoming one flesh. It wrecked all that. So the world in this Old Testament time period was a heavily man-centered culture. So most of the uh, choice of divorce, sorry ladies, um, was on the man. The woman didn't have as many rights, even outside the Jewish culture, uh, to pursue then. But if a man wanted to divorce his wife for whatever reason, before the law of the divorce certificate, he could divorce her and put her away. That's an encouraging way to word that, isn't it, ladies? <laughs> Just put her away. Get the mob involved. They would be, this would, now, here's the deal. When he divorced her, this would be a somewhat public mark on the woman. Everyone would assume, because that's what we do as a culture, we love to assume everybody else's business. They would naturally, most would have assumed that she had been unfaithful. And this woman who was divorced for her, by her husband for any number of reasons would be left to fend for herself and to do her best to earn a living in a society led and sustained mostly by men. And that would be tough. And then along comes Moses with Deuteronomy 24. This new piece of law. And he says that whatever reason you divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce before you send her away. And he doesn't give us the reason in the text. But through the cultural context of this day, there has to be a reason for it. And the reason would have to be that God was in an effort saving this poor woman who may have even been divorced from her husband for dumb reasons. If the man had no real reason to divorce her, he would have nothing much to write on the certificate. <laughs> she would have written proof that he was a doofus and that she was not cheating on him. Therefore, she would not be ostracized from her culture that was based on perceived morality. Y'all, this is why the Bible gets a bad rap. People believe it's some archaic piece of male chauvinistic garbage. The Bible over and over and over again reaches out and, 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 and commands protection for the most vulnerable in our society. Widows, orphans, diseased, and here, divorced women. The allowance was intentional so that these women would be protected. These women not woman. These women would be protected. But it was also narrow. It was not only intentional, it was narrow. Deuteronomy 24 appears to be pretty ambiguous as to the reasons a divorce could occur. And I'm just going to step out on a limb and say that when I read verses, verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24, most of you ladies are going to have a cold chill go up your spine. Okay? Because it sounds... It sounds bad, but allow me to wait till I, wait till I explain it, okay? Because we're going to get into the Hebrew a little bit, okay? 
If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a certificate of divorce, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Sounds good, right, ladies? <laughs> I saw a lot of this. Taking me back to middle school, the little the Z that you used to snap, you know that? If there's anybody in their 30s, you should be at least nodding and laughing, okay? I'm off my notes. Oh, so at first glance, this can seem like a man can divorce his woman for any reason he wants. However, the word indecent that is used here throughout the Bible is tied to nakedness and immorality. Every time that I could find, okay? And so what, G, what, what, what the law is saying, though it doesn't come out and say it, seems to be exactly what Jesus would say many years later. That there is a concession for divorce and it is involving sexual immorality. Over time, however, as you can see from the text, there's room to interpret it improperly. And there was one popular Jewish rabbi who began to do that. He interpreted from this verse that we just looked at that a man could divorce his wife for anything he didn't like about her. By the time Jesus is on the scene, this is the most widely accepted interpretation. We know that it was even being said that a man could divorce his wife if she burned dinner. Like that, was, that was enough. <laughs> like, hey, I don't care what kind of mama she is. I don't care how good she takes care of. She burned dinner. You can, you can, like that, they were care, they were misinterpreting scripture that badly that God was going to be okay with you divorcing your wife simply because she wasn't a great cook. You can see now why in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 19 that Jesus was backed into a corner and he was asked the question, can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? They were asking the question from this Jewish, this, the passed down teaching of this Jewish rabbi. It was a touchy subject. And they just had such a bad interpretation of these verses that Jesus felt it necessary to correct it. And he helped them see. Let me show you again what we just talked about. That God may allow divorce. God does allow it in the law for the Jewish people, but it was never his desire. And that this allowance of divorce by God was to help women in particular and to narrow the reasons to really just one as adultery. Now, let me say a couple things here before we dive off into oaths. First off, we can't be guilty of doing the same thing with Jesus' teaching that the Jews did with the law. We can't take Jesus' concession as a command. Here's what I mean by that. When Jesus says that divorce is allowed in the case of sexual immorality, he isn't saying that when there is sexual immorality in a marriage, you should divorce, no questions asked. It's not a command Because again, God's desire is always first and foremost for reconciliation and restoration, if at all possible. The second thing I want to say to you, if you have been through a divorce, I know it hurt. And I know it was painful. And I can't imagine how difficult it was for you as I've walked relatives and I've ministered to teens whose parents are going through this and I've ministered to families. I would not wish divorce on anyone as i told the first service even on mosquitoes and i hate them 
Because divorce is so painful and it's so terrible. And if you've gone through a divorce, this is what I need you to hear. It is not an unforgivable sin. It's not. You are not marked for the rest of your life to live a life less than joyful in Christ. You are not living some subpar existence in the margins of God's grace. Because here's what I know. God wants to use you to bring glory to his name right where you are. And don't live defeated because of your past mistakes. Don't live, don't allow the enemy a foothold in your life to make you think that you're unworthy because that happened in your life. Get after it for the glory of God and move forward in God's grace. Amen? Amen. All right. Maybe the crying's done. Second interpretation correction was on oaths, which is much less emotional. <laughs> and it'll go quicker, I promise. Uh, number two, Jesus corrected the, the people's interpretation of oaths. Um, I won't do this whole thing again, but, but the idea of oaths was just like the certificate of divorce. Um, if you, you know what oaths are? It's something you add to a statement in an effort to ensure that you're telling the truth. It's a promise with collateral, okay? The one from my childhood that you probably maybe remember, I don't know how long this goes back, but I know everyone my age or younger has probably heard it. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Familiar with that one? Some of you, all right. Um, that's a common one. Um, it's saying, if I'm lying, then kill me and stick a needle in my eye. Preferably in that order, right? <laughs> kill me before you stick a needle in me. If I'm speaking, that's what it's saying. If, if I'm lying, then let this thing happen to me. Or oftentimes an oath calls on someone else. People would, people would make an oath, as Jesus, we're going to read here in a second, people would make an oath and call the Lord, right? They would, make, they would make an oath on the Lord's name. And what they're doing in that situation is if I'm lying, then the person I'm speaking of in this oath, let them deal harshly with me. And so in light of that definition of what oaths are, let's move to verse 33. Again, you've heard it said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because that's God's throne, earth, because it's his footstool, Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Don't swear by your head, because you can't control your hair color anyway. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. And so Jesus here isn't actually giving us a a word-for-word direct quote from a particular passage, but he's providing a general idea that's found in many places in in the law. Most notably in Leviticus 19.12, do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God, I am the Lord. So in the law, God made it clear that if you use his name in an oath, you better doggone well keep it. It was clearly a common practice in Jesus' day to swear by lots of things. Jesus mentions heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and your own head. But Jesus shoots every one of those down and he says simply this, Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus says there is no reason to ever swear by anything. Do you really lie that much that you need, that you need oaths? To, to prove to someone that you're really telling the truth. 
You got to bet. You got to throw a lot of money on the table just on a statement to just get them to believe you. This is the only need for oaths. You see, just as God allowed a concession for divorce because he knew man was sinful and he wanted to provide a way for those involved, a way forward for those involved, he also knew that man was a bunch of liars. And there's no way that we could communicate clearly when we were being truthful because we were going to tell so many lies in between. If we, were, if we were ever to be able to have relationships at all, he should allow a way to pr- prove truthfulness by one's own words. But again, just like divorce, this was not God's plan A. God wants you to live a truthful life so that when you interact with others, they will believe you. Be a man or woman of your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is the ideal. Tell the truth. It's a crazy idea, isn't it? Just to tell the truth. The simple application points for these, as we move through, we've talked about divorce, that, that there was this, this seemed to be this loophole that, uh, that the Jews were, were magnifying. And with the, the oaths, again, there's this loophole that we're magnifying. Um, the simple application points could be fight for your marriage and tell the truth, right? And then we could just all go home and, and live on those two things. But I believe there's something else. There are tons of concessions in God's word and, and these, these things that we can make loopholes out of. And we can take advantage of them and stretch them as far as we can. And here's the biggest one for me and for you. We know that God has called us to be like Jesus. But we also know that's impossible because we all sin. And so often... Because of that connection, we know God's called us to live like Jesus, but we know we can't. So often we dive headlong into an obvious temptation to sin and make the excuse, well, nobody's perfect. You got sin too, Matt. Call me out. Right? But here's the truth. God has called you to live like Jesus. And we're going to talk some more about that at the end of next week because Jesus says, be perfect as uh, God is perfect. So that'll be fun. But for now, let me just say, we can't overlook this calling to live like Jesus and just make excuses for ourselves so that we can follow our own sinful desires. This can't be a thing for believers. And so today, let me ask you, have you been excusing away your sin just because everybody else does it? Have you been skating by being blatantly disobedient to the things of God in your daily life because the grace of God allows you to? You've got grace. You've got forgiveness. Just roll on, baby. Just as the the Jews had misinterpreted these two ideas in the law, we too can be guilty of misinterpreting grace and the teachings of God's word in such a way that we can excuse our own sin. This is not good, church. A next step for you today may may be to begin to pray what we did two weeks ago. God, change my desires so that they look like you and not me. Change my desires so that they match you and not me. And if you've never trusted in this Jesus that, whose teaching that we've just studied, I need you to know that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. Man, he was good. But he wasn't just a good teacher. He was the Savior of the world. And because of our sin, we are eternally separated 
from God and we can't get back to him on our own no matter how hard we tried because we've sinned. We've talked about it for the last three weeks. But this Jesus that we just talked about lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't pull off in a million years. And he actually died a cruel death on a cross because people were terrified of his teaching and his power. And on the cross, the Bible tells us that all of your sin and mine was placed into his body as he died. That means that the punishment for your sin, which was death and separation, has already been paid in Christ. You and I can walk freely into the presence of God through his grace and love. The Bible tells us that Jesus took our sin and gives us in exchange his righteousness or his goodness before God. And the Bible also tells us that he didn't stay dead. God raised him up as evidence of his power and as a means to give us life and salvation. Today, if you will turn from your sin and call out to Jesus as the only one who, will, who can save you and will trust fully in him alone to make you right with God, today you can be saved. We're going to sing a, a song of response um, and we're going to have decision counselors by the back door, and I'll be down front, just as we always do. If you've been here, you know that. If you haven't, you don't. But that's why I'm telling you. We'll have a male and female counselor by the back door, and I'll be up front to receive you. If you'd like to talk with us about what it looks like to follow Jesus, to make that step, we would love to. If you haven't been baptized, um, you're already a Christian, walking with Jesus, but you haven't been baptized, we would love to talk with you about that. We'd love to, to get some warm water in this baptistry and take care of that for you today. Well, not today. Well, today if we wanted, okay, whatever. It won't be warm. Um, But also you can talk with us about joining this great fellowship of believers. So you can talk about that with our counselors during this time. Um, It's also a time for you to bring your needs in prayer where you're seated or you can come to the altar and kneel, come talk to us about anything. But I'm going to say a word of prayer. We're going to spend a little bit more time here and again in a little bit. I'll come back up and we're going to pray about something very specific um, but for now, let's, let's respond in those ways. In whatever way that God has called on you to respond to him today, you do it during this time. Father, we love you, God, and we thank you for what you've done in us and through us. And God, the way that you've blessed us, God, the things, um, the, God, the things that you've called us to. God, I pray, God, beginning with me, that I would take up the mantle of looking like Jesus, God, and knowing that you're the one that's doing it in me the whole time anyway. God, help me to participate with you as you make me more like Jesus. I pray, God, that during this time of response, that, God, that you would stir and you would move, and, God, you would act on our behalf, God, for your glory. And, God, I pray that you would help all of us to take one step today. God, maybe it's a baby step, deciding to read our Bible this week. Or, God, maybe it's a, a, a larger step of reconciliation of a relationship. God, whatever it is. I pray that we would all not leave here until we've taken that next step or at least committed to. Father, be with this time and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.